Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Warfare. I'm your host, James Rogers, and today marks the 158th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. In fact, today, July 2nd, marks the second day, the bloodiest day of this three-day battle. A battle which not only marked a turning point in the course of the American Civil War, but also in the history of how wars would be waged. To take us through this pivotal moment in history, we have Craig Simmons, who taught history at the US Naval Academy for 30 years and has written ex- extensively on the Civil War, including Gettysburg, a battlefield atlas. I know you're going to find this one fascinating. Enjoy. Hi, Craig. Thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's a little warm here today, but other than that, I'm fine. I'm in Annapolis, Maryland, where I taught at the Naval Academy for over 30 years and where I am now retired. Fantastic. Well, yes, I've read your books. I know your record, 30 years at the U.S. Naval Academy. Ten books, is it? Have I got that right from midway through to the American Revolution? Well, those are my World War II books. I also have a number of Civil War books. If you add them all together, I think it's around, I should know this number better than I do. I think it's about 18. Wow, 18 books. Well, it makes you the perfect person to talk to us today about the Civil War and specifically about Gettysburg. So give us a little bit of insight into this. As we're moving through the Civil War, when does Gettysburg take place. How important is it? What has come before? Well, of course, the anniversary, July 1 through 3, is coming up this weekend. And I think what has made Gettysburg such an icon, such a touchstone for students of the American Civil War, is it seems to be that moment when the war tipped. That up to Gettysburg, it seemed like the South had momentum. It was winning most, though not all, of the major set-piece battles. And this one in particular seemed fraught because it took place in northern territory, where if the South had won, that would have given them even more momentum. And because the South lost that battle and then subsequently lost the war, there's a perception that it was a kind of turning point. In fact, I have talked to people who are just casual students of the war who seem to think that Gettysburg decided the war. That's not true. That's going too far. But it is a kind of tipping point in the war where the momentum changed from what seemed like the South 
being well on its way to achieving its goal of independence to the South kind of clinging to a declining cause that in the end, of course, they lost. Because up to this point, there had been, like you say, a bit of momentum on the Confederate side. General Robert E. Lee had just recently won at Chancellorsville in Virginia, right, against Major General Hooker. But this is the furthest north that they had possibly been so far. And is it the point that this is a battle that the Unionists know that they have to win? They have to win because you're moving up towards the capital. Is this the point where there's no turning back? If you don't win this victory, then you start to see everything unfold. It's a little bit like El Alamein during the Second World War. You need to win that battle in North Africa. It's almost like the final battle to hold that rolling Rommel advance. Is this the kind of comparison we can draw? Well, I think the El Alamein comparison is an interesting one because it goes back to the tipping point again. but I don't think it's true that this, this is the one that has to be won. Lincoln believed that all of these battles had to be won. Of course, you mentioned Chancellorsville, and I love your British pronunciation of Chancellorsville. Chancellorsville <laughs> in Virginia was, was an important battle, but let me make this point about Chancellorsville. Arguably, it was Robert E. Lee's greatest victory. He was outnumbered, heavily outnumbered, nearly two to one. He was outsmarted in the opening phases of that when Union General Hooker got around his left flank and had him trapped. But Lee, the battlefield magical tactician, divided his forces not once, but twice executed a flank of the flankers and won an improbable victory at Chancellorsville that left Lincoln striding up and down in his office saying, oh my God, my God, what will the country say? I mean, to him, that battle, as the earlier battles, was devastating. It had to be won and was lost anyway. But all wars are political. And the Union would win this confrontation as long as the public at large sustained Lincoln in his war policy. The South could win only if the Union public said, nope, we've had it, we're not doing this anymore, we're we're not gonna support Lincoln's administration. That would mark the way the South won this war. So when you say this was the battle that had to be won in a military sense, the battle that had to be won was for the hearts and minds of the Northern voting public that kept Lincoln in office because Lincoln was committed to keeping a union together. And as long as he was in that that office, that's what he would do. But one more point about Chancellorsville, and that's this that yes, Lee won that battle and he inflicted terrible losses on his opponent whose morale was shattered and they were driven back north across the Rappahannock River. But in that battle, the federal forces lost 14% and the Confederate forces lost 21%. So even though the Federals lost more in actual numbers, the South lost a greater percentage of its army, so that arguably more victories like Chancellorsville would ruin the South. And what that taught Robert E. Lee was, it's not just winning the battle, it's winning it quickly before we are so eroded of our resources and assets that we have nothing left to fight with. So in in a way, it was a battle that the South had to win 
in order not to be ground down, which in the end, of course, they were. Well, take us in to Gettysburg. First of all, why does it take place here of all places? Yeah, Gettysburg is a little town. It's still a little town. In 1863, it had a population of 2,400. It was the county seat of Adams County, but not particularly important for that or any other reason. What made it the site of this huge battle was that the road network in Adams County ran into Gettysburg, kind of like the spokes of a wheel. If you look at a map of that area, there's a the road north to Carlisle and the road east to Baltimore and the road west to the passes of South Mountain and South. All of those roads converge on Gettysburg. So when these two armies, the Union Army and the Confederate Army in South Central Pennsylvania are kind of groping around, looking for each other, trying to assess the strategic circumstances, and they realize they are within a day's march of one another, they both decide we have to get our forces concentrated. And the place to concentrate them is where the roads come together. And that's what made Gettysburg the nexus of about 150,000 marching feet in the summer of 1863. So this is the classic defense of a strategic choke point, a place where all roads meet and you need to make sure you can hold or to obtain to ensure that you can get your supplies through and keep moving forwards if you win, of course. Absolutely, that's true. And remember that armies of this size, about 85,000 Federals, about 70,000 Confederates, they can't all move on a single road. So in moving through the countryside, Robert E. Lee put his corps and divisions in sequence and then gave the, assigned them separate roads, as did the Union. So if you get one of those units trapped to confront several or more units of your opponent, you're in trouble. So you have to concentrate quickly, and that concentration is only possible if you can find the nexus of the road network. Now, there are lots of rumors about why Gettysburg. One of the most popular was that came from an article written many, many years ago that the Confederates, who notoriously often were without shoes, heard that there was a shoe factory in Gettysburg or shoes were available somehow, and, and that this is what caused the Battle of Gettysburg, a hunt for shoes. And that has been expanded and exploded. It's not really entirely true. It is true that wherever the Confederates went, in any town, Union or Confederate, they tried to hunt up resources that they could use, including shoes, but other Confederate units had already been through Gettysburg two days before, and if there had been any shoes to find, they would have found them. So it's really not shoes, it's that road network. But is it true that in day one of the battle, it started as a bit of an accident, that the first contact between the two sides was unplanned? Was this a moment when the Confederates were going to seize more supplies and they stumbled across the Unionists? Yes, that's exactly right. One of the key elements of this campaign is that the eyes and ears of an army are its cavalry in the 19th century. Cavalry, you know, we like to think of massed cavalry charges with flashing sabers in the air, but the real purpose of cavalry was intelligence gathering. They were to fan out in front of the army, find out what was ahead, find out where the roads went, find out where the enemy was, and report that information back to the commanding general. The difficulty for the Confederates was that for about three to four days during the Confederate movement into Pennsylvania, 
the Confederate cavalry force commanded by James Ewell Brown Stewart, known as Jeb for his initials, was off on an exploratory raid. Instead of going up immediately to the right of the marching infantry, it swerved out and around the Union Army, something he had done before and gained great headlines for. But in doing so, that kept him away from the marching infantry so that he could not report. So that in a way, Lee was not quite groping, that's too strong a word, but he was denied all of the information he needed about where the enemy was. So as infantry units went forward without a cavalry screen in front of them, and they headed for Gettysburg, they bumped into a group of Union cavalry that were stretched out across a low ridge just west of Gettysburg. So that confrontation, that accidental confrontation is the first example of the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg. Nobody quite knew that's what it was going to be yet. But here comes Confederate infantry down the road, bumping into Union cavalry. They're kind of feeling each other out to see what's going on. And the infantry pulled back. We're not sure what's beyond that. Is there infantry back there too? So they both kind of took stock and then decided, should we go ahead? And A.P. Hill, the commander of the Confederate Third Corps, told this probing infantry group, yeah, there's nobody back. Go ahead. Go back into Gettysburg and get whatever resources you can find. And that is what led to the opening of this gargantuan battle. So tell us, how does day one pan out? Because if I think back through my history, it doesn't end that well for the Unionists, does it? Actually, it ends up better than they had any right to deserve. As I mentioned, they got this cavalry unit to Gettysburg early enough to hold the road hub. Remember, whoever gets to the road hub first can concentrate his forces, and the other forces would be on the outside of that perimeter. So the Union got there first with that cavalry unit. It happened to be commanded by General John Buford. And Buford recognized the circumstances, and so he arrayed his cavalry on that protective ridgeline and said, I'm going to try to hold this until the infantry gets here. And that was a very near-run thing. The Confederates came up, deployed their infantry, charged the cavalry. Now, one thing everybody should know about 19th century armies, cavalries have lots of dash and flash, but generally speaking, cavalry cannot stand up to infantry. Infantry will control the battlefield in significant numbers. And so here comes the Confederate infantry, and they're about to drive the Union cavalry off that low ridge line known as McPherson's Ridge after a nearby farm. But just then, the first elements of the Union infantry come up the road from the south along the Emmitsburg Road, run across the fields and up to and onto that ridgeline, almost as if somebody is writing a dramatic movie script here, and arrive just in the nick of time to hurl back this uh, Confederate infantry and hold McPherson's Ridge. There's another little skirmish that takes place just north of the Chambersburg Pike where there's a railroad cut. Engineers had built a cut through the ridgeline for a future railroad not yet built, but the Confederates went into that railroad cut and found themselves trapped there, and they were driven out. So by early afternoon of the first day of the battle, this is July 1st, 1863, the Union not only held on to McPherson's Ridge, they hurled the Confederates backward. So up to that point, if you were laying bets, 
at about 1.30 in the afternoon on the 1st of July, you'd have bet on the Union. They got to the road hub first. They held the ridge line to the west. The infantry got there in time to support the cavalry. Things are looking pretty good so far. But then it changes. And what changes it, remember, is that Lee is directing all his forces to converge on this road hub. So in addition to this group coming from the west, here comes another group down from the north, from Carlisle, down what was known as the Carlisle Road into Gettysburg. This is Ewell's Corps. And they arrive on the right flank of those Union forces holding McPherson's Ridge. And that completely unhinges, quite literally, unhinges the Union defensive position. And they have to fall back all the way through the town the road hub, and back onto more high ground just south of Gettysburg on a little knoll called Cemetery Hill. So when the sun sets at the end of the first day, the Union won the morning, but the Confederates absolutely dominated the afternoon. And it's twilight now on the 1st of July, and the momentum has shifted. Now it's all in the hands of the Confederates. So what's the thinking on that first night? Give us an insight into the mind of the generals. How does the Union plan to hold their position? Well, that's a very interesting question because there are a couple of key controversial decisions at Gettysburg, and all of them are on the side of the Confederates. Uh, let me just take a moment to explain. One of the reasons for this controversy is the perception in the South as I mentioned earlier, not entirely accurate, that if the South wins Gettysburg, they win the war. I don't think that's true, but that perception was powerful. And therefore, Confederates sought an explanation for why they didn't win the Battle of Gettysburg. And here's the first one. That perception is that the Confederates had lost their best field general at Chancellorsville. That's Stonewall Jackson who was shot by friendly fire at the moment of his greatest triumph and died eight days later. And Lee famously said, I have lost my right arm. The argument Southerners made is that, oh, if only Jackson had been there, he'd have kept going that first night. He'd have ridden right through town, charged up over Cemetery Hill, completely scattered the Union Army. We'd have won the battle and therefore the war and we'd be independent today. Wishful thinking. So that perception affected Brown coming down from the north. Lee sent him some orders that said, if you think you can take that high ground south of town, go for it, words to that effect. And Brown looked it over and he thought about it. But here's the problem. Not only is it high ground, but also it's got a whole array of Union artillery on the crest and Union forces are coming up behind it in great numbers, so he doesn't quite know how many they are, because remember, he's operating without a cavalry screen, so he's not sure of the numbers. And if he did charge forward, the road to the east, the Baltimore Pike, would be coming in on his open left flank. If more Union troops came down that road, he would be outflanked. And then, of course, it's twilight, it's near dark, it's heavily forested. To send troops up an unreconnoitered hill full of trees, it just seems like not a good idea. But he responds to Lee in this way. He says, if you can support me, if Hill can support me in this attack, I'll give it a try. 
And Lee said, no, no, Hill is used up. He can't contribute. It's up to you. If you think you can do it, go ahead. If not, never mind. And he doesn't. So this is one of those moments that Southern lost causers like to look back to and say, oh, this is why we lost the war. Jackson wasn't there. Jackson would have done it and we'd have won. So Brown has come in for a lot of criticism afterward, but it's not entirely warranted, I think. Would it have had any chance of success if he had pushed through? I mean, with so many variables and the fact they had the high ground, surely it is a pretty risky mission. It is a very risky mission. And we know that because they did try it the next night on the night of the second to get a little bit ahead of the story here and found that it was very difficult to maneuver in that kind of environment, attacking uphill through heavy woods against entrenched forces behind a stone wall. The chances of success were maybe... 20 to 30 percent, you're asking me to guess, but uh, we'll never know. No, it doesn't sound like optimum fighting conditions. But take us through to day two then. How do the Confederates plan to proceed? All right. Now, day two, the dawn of day two opens up with the Union still on Cemetery Hill south of the town. The Confederates have the town now. They have the road hub. They can bring their forces together at this position. But the question is what to do. They could attack where Brown was, north of town, try that again, but maybe not. Lee decides his best chance is to attack to the south of them, to hook around the left end, the left flank of the Union defenders on Cemetery Hill, where it seems to be most open. And the force that he's going to send to do that is Longstreet's Corps. James Longstreet, his most trusted subordinate once Jackson was gone, the one who had the longest experience as a corps commander. His troops were fresh. They didn't fight that first day. They had just arrived in the battlefield. So Lee and Longstreet meet, and they decide that Longstreet should swing around the Union left and attack from the south in a flanking maneuver to drive them off of that high ground. Sounds great. But Longstreet says, but on the other hand, I only have two of my three divisions here. I wanna wait for my third division to come up. That's Hood's. Longstreet famously said, I don't like to go into battle with only one boot on. So we'll wait for Hood. But here's the second controversy. Again, apologists for why Lee lost. Can't be Lee's fault because he's a paragon of virtue. Therefore, it was someone else's fault. Brown didn't attack on the night of the first. Well, here's Longstreet who delays waiting for Hood, and then takes a very circuitous marching route to get to his jump-off position before he attacks. So instead of attacking in the morning, and there are all sorts of arguments that he was supposed to attack at dawn, not true. At nine o'clock, probably not. Certainly by noon, however, and yet the attack takes place at four o'clock in the afternoon, by which time things have dramatically changed. Union units have gone into different positions. Nevertheless, when that attack begins at four o'clock, this is July 2nd now, the second day of the battle, it is one heck of an attack. Longstreet took a long time to get ready, but when he was ready, he was a tornado. So he comes charging up from the south, up the Emmitsburg Road, through famous tactical confrontation points as the Peach Orchard and the Wheat Field and through Devil's Den. These places are all famous now for the fighting that took place there. And it achieves a tremendous success, 
but it does not completely break through. The union holds just enough. They hold famously on Little Round Top. They hold famously on Cemetery Ridge, where the first Minnesota loses 82% of its personnel holding that line. So it's almost strategically decisive, even though it is tactically decisive, but not quite. So when the sun sets on the second day, the Union is still on Cemetery Hill, although their lines have been collapsed a little bit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. This was the bloodiest day of the Battle of Gettysburg, wasn't it? Do we know any extent of the losses that we're talking about? And could you give us some insight into the type of fighting that took place here? Do we get to the point where this is hand-to-hand, bloody, muddy combat? Absolutely. Getting the precise numbers of the Confederates is difficult because some of those records are questionable. But the losses were horrendous. And you mentioned the hand-to-hand confrontation. The wheat field is probably the best example of that. When Longstreet's men charged across that wheat field in the afternoon, about 4.35 o'clock, they seized it. 
But then the Union launched a counterattack and drove them back across the wheat field. And then the Confederates drove them back across the other way. So back and forth go these assaults. And of course, the wheat field, as the name implies, is open ground. They're fighting at close range. It's absolutely horrendous. And firsthand accounts often talk about how you could walk from one end to the other and never touch the ground by simply stepping on dead bodies. And whether any of those stories are literally true, it gives a sense of what that must have been like, what a sanguinary field that would have been. And the same is true on Little Round Top, where even though it's a small unit action, the 47th Alabama against the 20th Maine, here two small regimental-sized groups, and yet ferocious fighting hand-to-hand. And the 20th Maine actually ran out of ammunition and faced yet another attack from the 47th Alabama and its commander, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, famously said, well, we can't retreat because it's a critical position. It'll unhook the whole line if we leave. We can't stay here because they're going to attack us again. There's only one thing left to do, and that's to charge. So he ordered fixed bayonets, and down the hill they charged, and it was just enough of a momentum shift that the 47th Alabama threw down its arms and raised its hand. And little, small unit actions like that had a disproportionate impact on the whole strategic map of Gettysburg. So all of this fighting is taking place at the southern end of the Union defensive position. And late that night, there was another assault, as I mentioned a minute ago, on the high ground of Culp's Hill at the other end of the Union line. So this sort of famously fishhook-shaped Union defensive position was under assault from both the left and the right to the south and to the north. And that's how the day ended. So this battle on day two comes down to those individual company commanders pushing their men forwards and really making sure that they can hold off the Confederates and keep that line. This is a massively defensive fight for the Union, isn't it? You've got to hold that ridge, hold that high position at any cost. And despite their heavy losses, they do so. So what are their thoughts? What's going through their minds on the night of day two? As They've got hardly any ammunition, vast amounts of casualties. They're licking their wounds. What do they think befalls them on day three? Well, this is true on both sides. But obviously, on the Union side, the Union Army is commanded by a man named George Gordon Meade. And he's only been in command for about five days because he took over from Hooker, who resigned when Lincoln wouldn't approve his withdrawing the garrison from Harper's Ferry. So Meade's a brand new guy in charge, and he calls all his division commanders together in a little White House just behind the center of his defensive line, and they huddle together by lantern light. You can imagine the scene. They fought all day long. They're tired. They're dusty. They're bloody. They know they're in a difficult spot. They're all but surrounded by an army they suspect is at least as strong as their own. And Meade, you know, ask, what should we do? It's not quite a vote. But there's a conversation about should we stay or should we go? Shall we get out of here at night while we have the chance? Maybe we should take up a blocking position further south and bring up more reinforcements and ammunition. Maybe that would be better. Or maybe we should hold where we are and hang on to this position because disengaging will be dangerous. What if they attack us on the march? 
So after much conversation through much of the night, a couple of the division commanders say we should go, but most say we should stay, and Meade makes that decision. We will stay. We will fight it out on this ground. Now, on the other side of the line, the same kind of conversation is taking place. Longstreet, who had directed that attack on the second day, says, you know, General, we have them kind of on the ropes here, but what we should do is disengage, sweep around behind them, and take up a blocking position between them and Washington. They will have to attack us. Then we will get to be on the defensive and make them charge us and inflict terrible punishment on them. That's the thing we should do. But Lee said, no, that's not right, because number one, we're operating in enemy territory and our lines of supply are more precarious than they are. And number two, the real problem here is that through most of this war, we have had to face superior Union armies. And right now, the numbers are as close to equal as they have ever been. And looking back as an historian, as they ever would be again, his numbers would be almost equal to Union numbers. Instead of fighting a larger army, he was fighting an army about the size of his own, and they had the momentum. They had driven them on the left. They had driven them on the right. We would stay, he tells Longstreet, and we'll attack them tomorrow. Tomorrow, I will break them. Well, day three is pretty famous for that attempt at breaking them, isn't it, Craig? Tell me what Lee attempts to do here. Well, the attack on day three, which virtually everyone calls Pickett's Charge, probably incorrectly, and I'll explain why in a few minutes. Lee has decided that he has attacked the left, he has attacked the right. The center will now be the weakest spot. The Union will have drawn reinforcements from the center to reinforce the right and the left. So this weak spot, even though it's in the middle of the line and even though it's across an open field, that's their weakest position. And if we can assemble a mass of infantry and prepare the ground in front of them with a heavy artillery bombardment and we break through the center, the Union Army will be broken in half and then they'll be completely chaotic and we can wipe up the leftovers after it's over. So there is a certain amount of logic to this charge at the center, even though after the fact, looking back on it, especially anyone who has been to Gettysburg and stood on that ground where Lee and Longstreet had their conversation and looked across that field at the little clump of trees that Lee used as a guidepost for the attack and said, how could anybody think that an attack across this open ground against that low ridge line had any chance of being successful. But at the time, it seemed to Lee that momentum was critical. He was low on ammunition. He had the longer supply line that stretched all the way back over South Mountain and down across the Potomac into Virginia. If he didn't do something decisive today, he would not have the wherewithal to continue the campaign. So this was the one that had to work. This would break the line. So he orders Longstreet to assemble three divisions. Now, one of those divisions was Pickett's. George Pickett, a Virginian with a Virginia division of three brigades, was the last to arrive at the battlefield along that long, long road from Virginia. So they were fresh, fresh in the sense that they had not yet engaged in the battle. So they would be part of the charge. But in addition to that, another division 
commanded by Pettigrew, was cobbled together of other units that had belonged to Brown and other commanders, and behind them, a third division of three brigades commanded by Marylander Isaac Trimble. So in a way, that it's not Pickett's charge, it's Pickett's Pettigrew's Trimble's charge, or you could even call it Longstreet's charge, although his heart was not in making this attack. Nevertheless, these roughly 12,500 men, sometimes people say it's 15,000 because in theory, there's supposed to be 5,000 men in a division. And so these three divisions would have had 15,000, but with attrition and so forth, it's probably around 12,000, 12,500. But nevertheless, arranged in the cover of the tree line on Seminary Ridge, not Cemetery Ridge, but on Seminary Ridge, would charge across that open ground in the immediate aftermath of an intensive artillery bombardment, the most intensive artillery bombardment of the war so far. So Lee got all of his artillery arrayed, got the ammunition ready, and began that bombardment around one o'clock, and it was apocalyptic. I mean, shells exploding, and it was the loudest man-made sound in the Western Hemisphere up to that date until arguably the explosion of the first atomic bomb at Alamogordo. So here's an enormous artillery barrage, and the Union responds with their guns, but the Union artillery commander, Hunt, decides, you know, I'm just wasting ammunition here. I'm not hitting anything. So he stops, and that allows the Confederate artillery commander to think that, well, I've silenced the enemy batteries. It's now or never. Now's the time to go. And so Longstreet tells Pickett, okay, I guess this is it, go ahead. And they step out of the tree line and begin that charge across the open field. And it's an iconic moment in the war. It marks the moment when warfare itself changed from the kind of warfare that had been fought in the Napoleonic era with massed soldiers arrayed shoulder to shoulder charging across the field versus the kind of mobile warfare that would characterize World War II. It's more like what happened in World War I on the Western Front. And because of that particular moment, and because of the mythology that, oh, if it had broken through, the outcome of the war would have changed, a questionable decision, but a perception that lingers nonetheless, this charge across that open field, about a 20-minute charge by the time they come out of the trees, cross that open field and hit the center of the Union line under fire the entire time attrition takes place. One way to imagine it, it's like a wave, which when it begins on the beach is a giant roller, but as it moves up the sloping beach, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until by the time it arrives at your toes, it's just a small stream. And that's kind of what happened during Pickett's charge. Some made it all the way across that field. Famously, James Armistead leading his brigade of Pickett's division hits the exact point at the center of the Union line, puts his hat on his sword tip and says, come on boys, who will follow me? And they were the last words he ever spoke because the artillery that was no more than 20 feet in front of him uh, barked its last rounds and he was mortally wounded. So this is the famous high watermark, not only of Pickett's Charge, not only the Battle of Gettysburg, but in the minds of many of the whole Confederate cause. So this is the high watermark, but it's most certainly a high watermark that is defined by, like you say, a small, weak flow 
of water, a stream that hits that high watermark instead of that tidal wave that it was meant to be going through. Do they make any gains, any successes there? I know they almost captured nine cannons. Was there any chance of success or is this the end of the Battle of Gettysburg? Well, they do actually break through the line. They get into across that little stone wall. And when I say stone wall, it's only about 18 inches high. It's just really to mark the edge of a field. It's not a defensive barrier, but they cross that wall and up the slope. And there's a little marker that was put there in the 19th century showing where Armistead fell. That's the traditional high water mark. To give you some sense of the kinds of arguments that emerged after the battle was over, North Carolinians claim, oh, no, we got further up the hill, and they have their own marker about uh, 50 yards north of that that's a little bit higher up the hill. And these are absurd arguments because there wasn't enough impetus in breaking that line that even if they had gotten through, there aren't enough men there to exploit having done so. So, no, it's a failed assault even before the high water mark. So, no, I don't think it had much of a chance, even from the beginning. So let's just talk a little about the scale of this battle. So this is 166,000 troops engaged, around 51,000 estimated casualties captured, wounded and missing. What impact does a battle of this size have on the Civil War from this point onwards? Well... Again, we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that this is a turning point in the war. It's a momentum shift. It doesn't decide the war by any means. Keep in mind, more Northerners and Southerners were killed in battle in the two years after Gettysburg than in the two years before Gettysburg. So the war is going to stay bloody and long and costly for quite a while yet. But what those 51,000 casualties signal to the cultures on both sides of the Potomac River is that this war is going to be costly. And it is. These kinds of losses. You know, the Romans had a term that if you lost 10% of your unit, 10%, you were decimated. Well, here in this battle, there you lose 30, 40, 50%. The first Minnesota I mentioned lost 82% in less than an hour. So the kinds of losses, the kinds of casualties and bloodletting that characterize the Battle of Gettysburg would characterize the war pretty much for the rest of its run. The campaign in 1864, in the year after Gettysburg, that Grant conducted against Lee in Virginia, that was the bloodiest campaign of American history to this day, bloodier than the Battle of the Bulge or D-Day. And the two societies, I think, got used to that. If you can get used to something like that, they accepted it as the cost of fighting this war, which is one of the things that makes it horribly tragic. Craig, thank you so much for taking us through step-by-step step, those key moments, day one, two, and three of the Battle of Gettysburg. Tell us, where can people read more? Well, uh, there, are, <laughs> there are so many books on the Battle of Gettysburg. The old standard is Edward Coddington's The Battle of Gettysburg. It's a little dense and it's a little long, but it's a good starting point for a lot of people who want to know the details of what happened. If you're interested in the personalities, Gary Gallagher has edited a collection of essays about individuals and decisive turning points, also called the Battle of Gettysburg. That's also a very good read and a number of others as well, but I'd start with those two. 
Wonderful. Craig, thank you so much. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks, James. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.